0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman and today I'm talking to George Mason University economist Brian Kaplan about his new book, Labor Econ Versus the World. Brian and I talk about the causes of unemployment, we talk about the minimum wage and other labor market regulations, about the effect of education on labor market productivity and about harmful biases in social scientific research among other topics. It was an awesome conversation and a pleasure to talk to Brian. I hope you enjoy the interview. Brian, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here, Chris. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do and why it's important? I am Brian Kaplan. I'm a professor of economics
1: at George Mason University, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author of the book, Open Borders. I've written a bunch of other books, uh, The Myth of Rational Voters, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education. And today we're talking about my new book which is called Labor Econ Versus the World, Essays on the World's Greatest Market. Now, as to why it's important, well, that I guess I will leave to your listeners to decide afterwards whether it's important. I found it to be quite counterproductive to tell people how important you are, but I'll say that I've managed to find myself into a dream job for life where I get paid to go and work on whatever I want to
0: work on and talk about the ideas I care about. This book is also a pretty good lead-in to a lot of your other books. Uh, just going through it, obviously, it seems to me that your other books probably started as ideas and conversations mm-hmm. and blog posts and blossomed into full-fledged academic books. Uh, you get to kind of see a lot of the background of some of your books mm-hmm. reading this one in a more digestible form and kind of sampling the different subjects you take on more uh, comprehensively in your books. Is that is that about right? Yeah, there's there's a lot to that. I mean, really, what happened is I've been blogging for Econlog for
1: 17 years, and I've had some friends who were successful authors who said, "Hey, let's try. Oh, I'm going to try a self-publishing experiment on Amazon," and they told me it worked great. So I said, "Yeah, why don't I try something?" And I said, "Well, I got 17 years worth of blog posts. Why don't I go and find the very best ones and then reorganize them by topic, so that people who are interested in one particular area of what I write about can just get a, a whole set of essays about
0: that." And this is the first in a series of eight such books. And that was going to be my next question. So you are planning on doing this with different broad topics. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a teaser <clears> on what one or two of the other ones? Sure. Will so the
1: next one, which will probably be coming out in like a month or two, is called How Evil Are Politicians? Essays on Demagoguery. So this is one where I've written just a bunch of essays on bad things that politicians do. And in particular, the intellectually bad way that politicians act, or just what they say, even if you agree with inclusions, it's just so unreasonable, so unfair, so contrary to all basic logic and regard for evidence. So I have a book on that. I've got another one called "Voters as Mad Scientists: Essays on Voter on I believe it's uh, Essays on Political rationality. I've got one called "Self Help is Like a Vaccine," um, and then let's see. I've the titles of the others let's see, what are some of the others? I've got one called, uh, let's see, you know, Pro Market and Pro Business. I've got one with, uh, yeah, so maybe maybe my favorite title is You Have No Right to Your Culture essay. That's a, a good one. Condition. And actually, so there's one book which will have a totally new lead essay. So that book is called Don't Be a Feminist Essays on Genuine Justice. So that's one where I take a lot of the writings that I've done about what I call the social injustice movement. And then there's an essay I've just been wanting to write for a while, which was going to be called Don't Be a Feminist, A Letter to My Daughter. And I had the idea of why don't I go and make that the lead essay in this book. And so this is one where my daughter's actually too young to read it, but I wanted it to be there the day she's ready.
0: Well, are you planning on publishing them all in pretty short succession? Like you said, the next one's coming out in a month. So can we expect all of these to come out over the course of the next year or two?
1: Yeah. So there's eight books. So my plan is basically two to three months between each book. There's been a learning curve. So the first one took six months to really get to get through, but I now have a formula and the editor of the first book, Jeff, Jack Pfefferkorn, he's you know like, like, he and I worked out exactly what we wanted it to be. And then I've got someone else that's helping me with the next book. So yeah, I think that once we're going to hit stride pretty soon, and then we'll just uh, chug the books out every two or three months until all eight are done.
0: Do you have any plans to do any of these uh, um, on audiobook? Let's see. So that
1: would be a much bigger investment. So these are all going to be self-published, So all my, you know, which is, again, an experiment for me. But to do that would then require quite a bit more. So
0: unless someone comes along and does the legwork for me, probably not. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, the self-publishing really probably makes this a lot more attractive. You've already done the bulk of the Mm -hmm. work. It's just Mm -hmm. a matter of putting it all together. Mm -hmm. So you already said the title, Labor Econ Versus the World, Essays on the World's Greatest Market. So what is labor economics exactly?
1: Labor economics is the application of economics to human labor, the allocation or more generally of human time. So, of course, it starts off in really the 18th century, a little bit before, where you just start thinking about, hmm, well, we understand what it's like to go and have a market in grain. We understand what it's like to have a market in sheep. How about a market in labor? Of course, it's already going on. But economists start saying, well, can we go and think about labor as being a good just like grain or like sheep? The, you know, there's, of course, the question of who owns it. Uh, So in free labor markets, it is the worker owns himself, but still the basic principle of there's a supply based upon who wants to work and how much at a given wage. And then there's also demand. How many people do you want to employ and how many hours of their time do you want to employ at that wage? And that gives us the ideas of labor supply and labor demand. And then once you've got that, there's just a long list of conclusions that flow very quickly which goes so strongly against people's emotions. And then the question is, are we gonna buy these conclusions even though they are unappealing to so many people? Right. Um, and then you know, the more you work on it, the more you realize, hmm. All right. Well, maybe the emotions aren't telling us something, but maybe if we think more, there it is actually a bit more complicated than just being like the market for grain. So a lot of what I do in the book is actually try to start with that supply and demand framework, but then go through and say, ah, there's something really complicated going on here. And then I should add, uh, you'll notice that I actually have quite a book on the relationship market, economics of marriage, and so on in the book. And that actually got added on to labor economics starting basically in the 1960s, where people realized, well, let's see, we're thinking about the way that people allocate their time here. So if you look within the family, often there's an allocation of some time people sell outside of the home, other time that they reserve to use within the home. And similarly, there's ideas about how is the people search for jobs. And then you realize, hmm, well, now that we understand how people search for jobs, we can think about how they search for a relationship partner. In terms of empirical research, online dating has done wonders for this field, because finally we've got real numbers about what's going on. And It was so informal, there's barely any statistics on what's happening. But now there's lots of great papers where people just analyze what the hell's going on with online dating from an economic point
0: of view. So besides the human interest that might be you know peaked with with labor and like human time, why does why it need like a, a separate subfield within econ? How, why is uh, labor economics fundamentally different than the economics of grain or land or capital? Great question.
1: So, I would say it would get its own subfield even if it wasn't different just because it's such a huge market. So, when you go and look at all the income that people on earth earn, something like 60 or 70 percent of it comes from labor. So, that by itself, I would say, would get it to its own field even if the whole field just said, Yes, this is exactly like every other field, there's nothing special about it. But there are, of course, a long list of things that are special about labor. One of the big ones is just that it's very hard to know exactly what labor is until you've employed it. And even then, you may still wonder, Hmm. okay, I've seen this person can do this and that, but can they do another thing? Whereas if it were, say, grade A steel, there wouldn't be any real mystery about what the, the product is capable of doing. But when you go and interview for a job and say, I'm going to hire this person, there's just a great deal of uncertainty about what's going to happen. So that's one big difference. Another big difference is actually just the human emotions matter so much on the job. Nobody cares what the steel feels about its situation. And indeed, even for a farm, people don't care very much. Well, what does the horse think about all this? But if you are employing someone, it actually really does matter. Like, is this person content with this job? Well, that determines whether or not it's going to be worth training this person, because if they aren't happy, they're probably going to leave and then I'll waste the training. So should I train this person? What should I train them in? Will their feelings be hurt if I tell them, gee, sorry, you're not going to be promoted because you're not actually good enough? So that's another thing that that we get out of it. Um, And then, you know, obviously, there's also big changes in what labor can do over time. So the classic learning curve. Um, One of the main things that I do in my work and that you get a taste of in this book is I try to argue against the popular view that the main way that labor improves is through education. I say that most of the way labor improves is through learning on the job. So, in this way, when you hire a person, a lot of what's happening is that you are teaching them how to do the very thing you're paying them for. A slogan that I like is people like to think about education as job training. And I say education is more of a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. Of course, people do learn some useful skills in school, but I say a lot less than wishful thinking would have you believe.
0: So, you're saying that learning on the job is the main way that labor becomes more productive as Mm -hmm. opposed to maybe the view that uh, going to college or formal education increases the productivity of labor. But what about, isn't, isn't a more common view that labor becomes more productive just through increased and better machinery?
1: Yes. Well, that's also, of course, true, but that isn't very relevant for an individual worker. It's very relevant over the course of a century. So, yeah, why okay. one worker can do so much more than 100 years ago? Yeah, well, the machinery is really important.
0: Or why a worker in another right, right, part right. of the world.
1: Why, why a worker is so much better this year than last year. Usually that's because the worker changed, not because the technology they're working with has improved so much. Especially, of course, in the early stage of your career, when you show up on the job really not knowing anything often, or having a bunch of counterproductive attitudes and, uh, and that you may have picked up in college, such as not working very hard. And then after a year or two, then you get molded into a new shape and you acquire new skills and a a more fruitful
0: perspective. And are just more tolerant of the negative aspects of work that maybe seem unbearable as a teenager.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, it's also important to remember how horrible school is too. So uh, yes, I mean, it was striking. So when you're a professor, you were around a lot of people who are very aware of the bad aspects of having a regular job, but are oblivious to how unpleasant school is for most people because professors are people who are usually great students and got patted on the head the whole time. But when you look around a classroom and just see the sheer boredom, Right. Of course, this would never happen to me because I am such a fascinating professor. Of course. Well, I've seen
0: some of your reviews. I believe that that's true. (laughs) Yeah. It's like if if a a bunch of industrial sociology was all conducted by, you know, industrialists and people who had devoted their life to that kind of thing, you might get a different perspective on what it's really like. And I don't know. That's kind of the situation with uh, probably research in general. I mean, how much of research is biased because researchers as a class Share certain biases and yeah. certain perspectives. They all love, school yeah. I mean, especially, and especially
1: for social science and humanities, where it you really are part of what you were studying. I don't think that there's much of a bias in physics, for example. But sure. yeah, but in in you know anything in social sciences, anything in humanities, you are getting a generally quite specific perspective on the world, and you can learn a lot by trying to actually. You talk to people and read people with a different point of view. I mean, of course, the people whose voices are basically silent are those who just don't write anything. Just you know, most people. You know, it's it's unusual for someone to write a disquisition on why school is a waste of time, right? Uh, so the kind of person that just doesn't like school doesn't write a disquisition. They just get out of school as soon as possible and live their lives and put it behind them.
0: Yeah, the closest thing to that is probably someone like Joe Rogan or stand-up comedians yeah. or ordinary yeah. people that yeah. are kind of talking, uh, the way lay people talk Mm -hmm. for lay people.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of standup comedy and I do think that if I could just listen to a random social scientist or random comedian to learn about
0: the world, I'd rather listen to the comedian. (laughs) So another thing you, you talk a lot about in the book is, uh, especially in the first part, wage rigidity, is that something that's also unique to like to labor economics as a field? And does that phenomenon apply very much to other types of prices in other markets?
1: Not unique, but it's most severe in the labor market, almost certainly. So here's the thing. When we see that, there, that a period of unemployment, there's an obvious question, which is, well, if we had produced more grain than we were able to sell, we would just cut the price until all the grain sold, a problem solved. But when there's unemployment, we don't generally see that wages come crashing down to solve the unemployment problem in a day, a week, or a month. Often it takes years uh, of elevated unemployment before the problem resolves itself. So I talk about things that are going on. So, one is that governments generally do try to prevent wages from falling. Minimum wage is a really obvious one, but there's a lot of other regulations where government is at least pressuring employers to not cut wages and to encourage wages to be pushed ever higher. But another part of it is that even without that government regulation, we see that people's feelings get hurt when wages come down, and especially when it's the official money amount that you get paid. So people seem to be much less hurt when inflation erodes their wages than when you actually say, hey, sorry, we're cutting your pay from $38,000 to $37,500 this year because of weak demand. Right? That seems to actually bother a lot of people. Uh, there's a great book called Why Wages Don't Fall by Truman Bewley where he actually went and interviewed hundreds of businesses and asked them, so why don't you cut wages when there's high unemployment? And yeah, the main answer is people really resent it and I have to work with these people right because again you know, like here's here's the real puzzle when you see that you've got a you know, when you've got bad business conditions you know, why is it that you keep paying the same wage normally and then lay some workers off rather than saying I'm just going to cut wages and tell the number of workers that I don't want quit right so, so that why would be
0: another way of doing it. I understand the the point you made about government making it difficult for wages to fall sometimes. But if there was if this were a different market, if this were like garbage collection and Mm -hmm. there was this persistent problem where garbage men just didn't pick up uh, garbage that had, you know, diapers in it, soiled Mm -hmm. diapers or something like Mm -hmm. that. And you could interview a bunch of garbage men about how unpleasant it is. Why wouldn't the market just, you know, reflect that in the price by rewarding managers who are uniquely uh, good at that kind of thing, or just didn't care, or or whatever. Why is why is this such an mm-hmm. unsolvable problem apart from like government issues?
1: Right. For the garbage we well, probably just pay them more, which seems to be something that comes much easier. In markets is paying people extra or uh, raising wages when labor markets are uh, when, you know, when labor markets are tight. But I mean, here's the here's the story that most employers will give you, and. Uh, so any and, you know, and I've, also, I've also tried this just talking to people who do this uh, do this uh, myself. so I'm not just you know, not just relying upon researchers I want to try to actually talk to people and make these decisions. What they say is, look, if I go and cut workers wages, what I wind up getting is a bunch of resentful workers whose productivity is so much lower that I actually wind up losing money as a result of this. And again, you might say, well why not cut wages again? Well, it just gets the resentment worse and worse and worse. Whereas they say, if I lay a few workers off, then worker productivity actually goes up. The workers who remain are scared, nervous about losing their jobs, and they work harder. Right now, I do think that part of this resentment is actually based upon a political philosophy saying workers or rather employers are evil and they're trying to rip us off. So I think that in a country like France, where there is a greater ideological resentment of employers, this is probably more severe. And you know, almost all countries, there is, of course, a philosophy of, of anger and resentment against employers. Uh, and I say that this is a very quite a counterproductive uh, philosophy because it means that you have more severe unemployment problems and unemployment problems are just harder to solve them, uh, harder to solve. But at the same time, I will also say that it seems like this is not just ideological, it also is a deep part of human psychology that, Normal human beings think in terms of nominal wages, and when you cut it, at least a lot of people get quite resentful. A story, I don't think it's in the book, but it's one that stuck with me. So I I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I heard tell that I was actually there one year when when the university did cut nominal salaries. So I heard that there were some prominent economic theorists who were very angry about it and were complaining quite loudly in the coffee room. And my inside source said a few years earlier when inflation was super high and their and their actual true real wage had fallen a lot more, they were not nearly as angry as this year where their nominal pay was cut. So even people who are professional economic theorists who officially don't even believe that there are these psychological influences, when you listen to them, it's like, huh, you seem human, you seem human.
0: Intuitively, that sounds very right to me in my experience as an employee also as a supervisor and how unpleasant it is to, I mean, reprimand people or chastise mm-hmm. people at all. But you know, if you have to if you have to, you know, tell someone they've done a bad job or take something good away from them at work, even if it's not lowering their wages, then you mm-hmm. you Yeah, take away their parking
1: spots. Yeah. Spot.
0: Mm-hmm. You are stuck with them all of a sudden being a grumpy employee and they mm-hmm. can get back at you in in ways. Yes. There, you know, there's all kinds of little vendettas that go on in the workplace that Mm -hmm. can't be tracked easily or so that, that, that makes sense to me for sure.
1: Right. And especially if you were to go and have an overall pay cut, then you have great mystery. Well, who's actually the one that's reducing productivity and there's no I in team. And so when you see that your team's productivity has fallen, this doesn't instantly tell you who did it. So it's another thing for employers to keep in mind when wage cuts seem like a good idea.
0: No, and a lot of—I mean, the most common thing that I can recall. Just for instance, I, I worked a long time in the in the service sector, and and I never saw people have their wages cut, but people would have their shifts cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might find that you're no longer assigned to the busy Saturday night shifts, or mm-hmm. you know you're treated like a little kid. And if you know if someone wants you to cover a nice shift, the manager's going to say no, no, you got to get someone else there. So it's more targeted, like you're saying. It's not like a general Mm. cut of everybody. Uh, What can the Simpsons teach us about labor economics?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a particular short essay in there. This is the Simpsons episode where there's a circus horse that gets abandoned. And the police say that, I think the police asking, does anyone want to adopt this horse? And, And then nobody does. Okay, well, we're taking him to the glue factory. And then the, the Simpsons kids like, no, that's terrible. Don't do that to the poor horse. And then I believe Officer Wrigham says, you know, look, you know, I just want this horse to either have a good home or be, you know, or, or actually dog food factory, not blue factory. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, I just, you know, I just want this horse to you know, either have a good home or be food. All right. So basically, either he has to have this really great, great outcome or he the, the worst possible outcome. I say a lot of labor market regulation really has the same attitude where it's like, look. I either want someone to have a really great job or be unemployed. So, uh, so you know, just, just to back up, I mean, one of the most popular labor market regulations in the world is the minimum wage, right? And it basically just says, look, everyone should, be, should receive at least a wage that we consider to be suitable, acceptable, right? So maybe it's $15 an hour, whatever it is, right? And then there's the obvious question, and then, and then you know, like anyone who opposes this, natural reaction is you hate workers, you're terrible. And there's a question, well, well gee, so if I hate workers because I'm against a $15 minimum wage, well, how about a $20 minimum wage? How about a $30? How about 100 How about a million? Right? And, and there's a point normally where common sense kicks in. It's like, well, if it was like $100 an hour, then probably this would lead people to hire fewer people, right? It's like, yeah, that makes sense. So maybe the person who really cares about workers isn't the person who favors $100, minimum, $100 an hour minimum wage. Maybe it's not 90 Maybe the person who opposes the $15 an hour minimum wage is also not an enemy of the worker. Maybe he's rather someone who is aware of this disemployment effect, which, when you think about it, is almost impossible to deny. If it was. I don't know someone.
0: if it was you or somebody else who pointed mm-hmm. out that when you're applying for a job and they ask you yeah. how much money you want, yes. every person intuitively understands yes. how it's shooting yourself in the foot to write something too high because yes. – it's going to have a disappointment, a disappointment effect on you.
1: Yeah, that, that was me, actually. I believe I'm the original, the real, the, the person who came up with this point. Yeah, it's very common on a job application to have salary requirements and people don't put a million dollars a year because they realize if they ask for too much, that hurts their prospects. So sometimes people have said, Well, look, the reason why people have a problem with labor economics is it's so counterintuitive. And I say, No, no, it's not counterintuitive. It's emotionally unappealing, which is different it's super intuitive, but it's bitter. It's bitter. Right. And a lot of what I try to do in the book is to teach it with humor, to, to take the sting out of it and say, look, all right, look, we know we'd all like to be told that we're worth a million dollars a year, but it's just not true. And if we pretend that people are worth a lot more in the market than they really are, it isn't going to mean that they get a great life. It is going to mean that they're probably going to have trouble getting a job. Um, so and, you know, but anyway, so this is true of the minimum wage, but the same basically goes for a whole lot of other labor market regulations, like everyone has to get health insurance. Well, that doesn't really mean that everybody gets it. It means that either you get a job with health insurance or you don't have a job at all, right? Or everybody has to get family leave. Well, it doesn't mean everybody gets a job with family leave. It means that either you get the good job or you don't have a job at all. Um, now, one thing that uh, you know, that a lot of will say is, all right, well, there's a trade-off here, um, you know, true. Uh, But I'm a lot more influenced by psychology than most economists. So over in psychology, one of the standard results is that people's happiness depends very much on just having a useful job and not actually that much on their income. So I say that when people say, well, on the one hand, we help workers by raising their wages. On the other hand, there's some small disemployment effect, big deal. I say, no, it is a big deal because disemploying people creates immense misery. And, and uh, you know, and like over in psychology, when the people do study human happiness, they find there's just this large harm to human happiness purely from unemployment, irrespective of pay. So, someone could have all their pay made up to them, and yet they still just feel useless and this meaninglessness of it all because they don't have a job. Uh, I'll say that during COVID, I actually got a strong dose of this. I'm still actually paid at my full wage, but When I have no place to go, I don't see my coworkers anymore. I don't see students anymore. Then to me, it basically felt like unemployment, you know, unemployment without any cut in pay, but still it's like, well, what do I do now? I'm just alone by myself working on a computer. This doesn't seem like much of a life to me anymore. It
0: just seems like I'm just
1: superfluous to the world now.
0: And it seems like, especially on the, on the low end that in addition to unhappiness and you know, the psychological effects you're talking about, does it push people into, you know, less savory, mm-hmm. you know, lifestyles, uh, you know, to ghettoize people or push, especially, mm-hmm. you know, young teen males into oh yes,
1: uh, illegal yeah, yeah. alternatives? Yes. Yeah, very plausibly. So in my book, I talk quite a bit more about the apprenticeship or vocational education side of this, but you know, the, you know, the, the, the general point makes a lot of sense too, but you know, so right now you've got a lot of teens that are in compulsory education, in high school. They hate it. They really just can't stand being in school, especially young males. And and so what? ends you know, they're they're really being trained for no particular job. Especially so if you're just showing up and not doing the work, you're really not acquiring much in the way of skills. Uh, so. Sa, it would be much more much more fruitful to go and take guys like this, and there's just a lot of them, not just guys, but guys especially, and just prepare them for a job and say, "Look, you don't like listening to some windbag talk to you about poetry. Fine, let's go and teach you how to go and repair cars or teach you to be a carpenter or teach you something or teach you, you know, how to be a waiter or, or
0: what have you. So then but why are I, unpaid internships illegal except yes. for uh, rich kids?
1: Yes. Right. I mean, it's a fair point because, uh, so, I mean, here's something that we're like, so I mean, as a university professor, there are many people in universities who have a giant chip on their shoulder about unpaid internships. And it's like, oh, this is so exploitative. I mean, like, like you, just yeah, maybe you get some job training, but you're not paid anything. That's terrible. Say, look at what we do here. Here we, we pay people a negative amount to give them some job training, supposedly. Right. It's not even free. They'll here we charge them. So who are we to look down on employers who, in exchange for working for free, gives people
0: useful job training connections? It just seems crazy, you know, absurd double standard there. So to, does that um, attitude does yeah. that attitude extend to you know the higher end jobs where it is allowed st- as well?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's very common, actually, for academics to think that it's terrible that students have to do these unpaid internships and that there should be a, and the minimum wage should be applied there, too. Right. So, yes. Uh, in the in the book, I talk about, well, you know, rather than trying to cr- to crack down on unpaid internships, unpaid internships, why don't we just say the truth, which is that uh, it is a very good deal to get some job training in exchange for working for free. Right. This is, you know this is a, this is something that is actually people hung, hunger for, they hunt for it. It is an, uh, you know, overall a better deal than school because at least you, know, you don't have to pay the employer to train you, right uh, You make you make some actual valuable contacts in the process. And then again, as you were saying, the main issue is that right now essentially uh, you need to be it needs to be a college type job either for someone who's in college or who just got out of college. Whereas if McDonald's tried to have unpaid internships, then the government would definitely crack down on them and say no, the minimum wage applies. But yeah, I mean, there is this bizarre thing. So you can chart, you can pay someone zero, you can pay the minimum wage, you can't pay them half the minimum wage. Why? <laughs> like what's what, what's going on there?
0: Well, and but, it seems it seems like it would be uniquely cruel to people who d- don't come from privileged backgrounds and don't have the right. Uh, you know, look going into it because that's all they have to bargain with potentially is, you know, their willingness to go in and work for free to learn on the job or something. If you're, you know, if you're the son of Ivy League parents or the daughter of, you know, Ivy League parents, and you have, you know, uh, all kinds of volunteer experience at the Model UN or whatever, then you're going to probably have a better chance getting your foot in the door than if you're a kid from a not quite as fortunate background.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And something else that I've talked about, I will confess to being a big fan of child labor—not putting kids uh, to clean chimneys or anything, but just to get kids working a few hours a week. And again, the main issue here is not that kids would be exploited, but rather that most kids are not productive enough to be worthwhile to employ. But especially at the existing minimum wage, then you know, like like who wants to hire a twelve-year-old for minimum wage? That would seem like a crazy choice, but this does provide useful training, not just in whatever job it is, but just acclimation to the world of work. And again, like you know, a lot of the way that we justify education is say, oh, well, it, maybe it's not fun for the kid. Maybe it's boring, but it's for preparation for life. And I look upon work as being the same thing where, you know, right, maybe the kid doesn't, isn't especially delighted to be working at McDonald's, but it's useful training and for later in life. And as to why we're willing to go and make these excuses for kids who are bored out of their mind in a poetry class, but not who are working in a donut shop, I do not know.
0: Can't we just hire uh, child laborers to, you know, work as amateur poets and scribes and doing the kind of things they're already doing in school, but at least getting a paycheck for it?
1: What's the problem with that? Well, uh, you could try it. I think there's just a lack of demand, actually. (laughs) I mean, for, lack of demand for, for adult poets. poets. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. like very little demand for the child poets. It's <laughs> sort of sort of like most performing arts. Who's in the audience? The families. They're the only ones that want to see it.
0: The uh, the carve out for you know more upper crust educated type jobs for unpaid internships reminds me of the a similar an analogous carve out for college students being allowed to rent dormitory style housing. That's illegal for. Anyone uh, else,
1: yes, yes, yes. why,
0: you know, I don't, This it takes us a little bit far afield from, from your book, but, uh, the two things were just I mean, you know, but it's, it's very
1: relevant actually to the book that I'm working on right now, which is, uh, build baby bill, the science and ethics of housing. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, actually, so I have some sense those laws are on the books, but I hadn't thought about them that much. Uh, so uh, thanks for pointing that out. I should take. A of look.
0: course, I, yeah. I think just running in uh, running in Yimby circles on Twitter, these kinds <laughs> of things get pointed out. Like, why is it why is it okay for rich college kids to rent dormitory style housing, but it's <laughs> uh, not good enough for ordinary working families or whatever? I mean, of course, um, if you look at
1: the prices for college dorms, you might say, "I don't see the appeal." Where's the cost savings? But <laughs> sure, yes, I believe that it's going to be done on the regular market, you would see uh, quite better deals.
0: Yeah, if it wasn't if it wasn't coupled with uh, all the Educational amenities. Um, is it is there? Are there any good going back to the uh, minimum wage? Are there any good reasons to think uh, of minimum wages as substantially different than any other kind of price controls? Hmm. Let's
1: see. So any good? You know, so there's definitely a bunch of abstruse arguments for saying that they're quite different in terms of whether there's any really good reason
0: or let me let me rephrase it behind closed doors mm-hmm. do economists really favor it for the straightforward reason that mm. proponents favor it or is it all politicking because it's very popular and it sounds good to gesture twor- you know are even the mm-hmm. economists who say good things about it do they know behind closed doors that it doesn't accomplish anything except for symbolism possibly right great question so my colleague Dan Klein actually some years ago Saw there was a
1: petition of economists who favored raising the minimum wage, and he emailed them all and just said, "I why, right?" And you know, he was actually a formal structured interview, and then he published the uh, published the responses. So I think like most of them, I think probably the most common answer is, "All right, fine. It does cost unemployment, but not that much as long as we don't get out of control with it." Right, so that was probably the most popular answer. But another popular one was the symbolic one of, look, we just need to make a statement here that our society does not tolerate this, and you know, like why, like what is such a why is that such a great statement to say that we're going to disemploy you? You know, like there's some of the idea was if you can't make enough money, then you should just be on welfare instead. Again, like, oblivious to the other roles of work in human life of just giving people meaning and something to do and some structure. Let's see. Now there is a technical argument that some economists do like, uh, which is called the monopsony argument, where basically it's, it's, we would really need to have a whole whiteboard to go and explain it. But it comes down to, it is logically possible within a certain range that if you were to go and uh, impose minimum wage that would actually be harmless or even increase employment. But it's such a, I mean, my my,
0: my view is such an implausible argument that I don't put too much time into it. And that's the, that's, I don't, Claim to understand it in detail, but that's essentially the famous Card and Krueger study, right? Uh, so, not exactly the Card and Krueger study. So, I actually you know, I was a student
1: of, da- of uh, David Card, and I actually right, not too long before he died, I had a conversation with Alan Krueger. So, I mean, like they're very empirical. So, really, their work just comes down to we just we just don't see much effect, right? And that could be because it just is a small effect, too small for us to detect. It could be monopsony they actually do in like in the famous paper on new jersey and pennsylvania they try to go through a number of different theoretical explanations and if i recall they find each one doesn't none of them work actually like well these are our results no model explains it the end right (laughs) Uh, so that's uh what what the paper in fact says so you know they say the monopsony model doesn't doesn't work because if it was true then the restaurant should have cut prices after you impose them in wage and they did not in fact, they raise prices, so not that's not the right story, right? I mean, I think the right story really is just that the world is noisy, and it's just hard to go and pick up the uh, the exact effect of a of a particular increase in minimum wage. You need to look at very at bigger changes. Uh, but I would also say that there are a number of reasons why it you would expect it to be harder to detect. For you. Most obviously, that a lot of the way that people save labor is by replacing labor with machinery over the longer run. And yet almost all the research just looks at short run effects. So, like the Card Kruger study, you know, I think it's basically over the course of nine months or a year. And they say, hey, well, we're not seeing this, this effect, they're uh, not seeing this effect. It's like, well, maybe it takes more than a year for fast food restaurants to go and bring in self, you know, self-dispensing drink self-dispensers for drinks and other ways of saving labor using more machinery. Uh, you can definitely go to poorer countries and see that in poor countries they use labor for things that we would not use labor for here right? So, and of course, the wages are lower, so it does make sense for them to use humans rather than machines. So this is something where it would just take more years. And I think if you were to go and talk to kind of work on this, like, well, if we wait for a 10-year effect, then it's just going to be so hard to really say for sure. And we want to get a paper out of it now. But again, the reasonable thing is, look, you you should expect the minimum wage of the damage to happen over a longer term period, generally. Uh, Another argument that's been made by my friend, Jonathan Meir, is that Normally, employers actually know the minimum wage is coming, so it would make sense for them to just start allowing workers to have attrition and not replace them as the deadline kicks in. And then an argument that I've made is that it's quite suspicious when you look at minimum wage legislation that it almost always includes a phase-in. It's basically unheard of for minimum wage to say, effective today, the minimum wage is now $3 higher. Instead, it will usually say, starting... March 31st of next year, we raised by $0.65, and then nine months later, by another $0.80, and then a year after that, by another dollar. And this is where you're like, hmm, why did you write it that way exactly? It seems like if you just believe the minimum wage had no disemployment effect, you would want it to kick in instantly. And yet it's almost never written that way, which I think actually is a sign of a guilty conscience on the part of people writing it. And I think they actually. It's so a tacit hearts, admission believe, that. Yeah, in their hearts, they believe there's a an effect. Yeah. But, and first of all, you know, like, you know, it's like, well, it won't happen as long as we phase it in. It's like, hmm, why wouldn't it do Why wouldn't people just respond all the more so since they have plenty of time to plan around it? I think a better story is they deliberately want to fuzz the effect. They want to blur things so that it, you don't have a smoking gun anymore. And they can sit around saying, I don't see any proof. I don't see any proof that it did anything.
0: Uh, anything could, uh, that could be anything. Who knows? I don't know right. if there's any good works on it, but it, isn't it the case that it was pretty nakedly that when minimum wages were first mm-hmm. becoming popular, it was pre, they were pretty nakedly sold as a way to you know protect uh, higher skilled workers from lower skilled competition that it was, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I think especially a, a way uh, of pricing for, yeah, labor. Especially
1: for protecting adult male workers from female mm-hmm. and child competition. I think that and was probably that was right? that, 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 that was that was pretty upfront. And yeah, then there were there were also various scientific racists of their era, so called, saying, well, this is a way that we can preserve the living standard of the white race. Uh, that kind of thing so
0: and doesn't i mean i i don't want to put those words in Mm -hmm. his mouth but doesn't uh ron unz make a a Uh, analogous argument about immigration today ron
1: Ron unz is a very smart guy Um, i debated him on immigration which is another part of labor econ versus the world and uh here's the striking thing he had a piece saying here's what we ought to do we ought to raise the minimum wage by lot here in california and when we do this this will you know, selectively disemploy lower-skilled workers who are very likely to be illegal workers, right? And he went now. Here is one where he, instead of the normal thing of denying the disemployment effect, he affirmed it and said, "Yes, the disemploy, the unemployment will be borne by the people we want to be unemployed, and when they are unemployed, they'll stop coming here and will stay in Mexico where they belong." So, I mean, I had to give it to him; it was a intellectually solid argument, and actually. When I was writing about it, I said, if you wanted to be even more diabolical, he would have said this, any illegal immigrant who rats on his employer for paying him less than a wage gets instant citizenship.
0: <laughs> that is like, diabolical. And,
1: yes. And it's like, well, this means that employers will be super uh, careful to avoid ever hiring anyone illegally because there is such an incentive for them to rat on them. Right? And as a result, you basically would hardly have to give the free citizenship to anybody. And instead, it would cause people to not hire illegal immigrants.
0: And then there'd be no point in coming. This is a good transition here. But before I get to the next question, I heard a rumor that you're a lunatic who supports open borders. Is that true? I'll say I'm a sane person who supports open borders. OK, OK. Go
1: on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. So uh, my last book was called Open Borders, the Science and Ethics of Immigration. And uh, yes, so it is very common to accuse others publicly of supporting open borders. Hillary Clinton supports open borders or Obama supports open borders. And yet, if you actually look at what they say and do, you'll see this is total slander and libel, and there's no sign that they favor anything remotely like that. Uh, I do favor open borders, Uh, so I have, again, a whole book on it. But then in uh, Labor Reconverse of the World, I have a bunch of essays uh, looking at different aspects of open borders and you know and like you know a lot of them are like shorter think pieces about different aspects of it but again you know, these the slogan is let anyone take a job anywhere like right? if there is a willing employer and a willing worker why should government get in the way and say you know, your papers please or else you can't have the job um so uh, that's the uh, the heart of the position
0: it's it's also common not just to uh, publicly accuse people of supporting open borders even when they don't, it seems really common to accuse our legal system of currently being an open borders regime. Uh, what do you yes. think about that?
1: Yeah, so that's absurd. And you know, whether, whether you think open borders is a good idea or a bad idea, um, so and here's how we know. Well, you can just look at the amount of money that people pay human smugglers to get them into the US, right? If we had open borders, there'd be no market for human smuggling and they wouldn't be able to make any money. Uh, in practice, however, it is standard just for Mexico, the closest country where people want to come from to pay several years worth of labor for a rural farm worker to get in. Right. And anyone who's coming from further than Mexico pays a lot more than that. So, you know, so like from Pakistan estimates are something like $75,000 to get to get in illegally. So people do not pay uh, me- uh, year's worth of income for stuff that's free. And so I'll say that's crazy.
0: How much do you, um. <clears throat>
1: Puerto Ricans pay to get here. Ah, of course, Puerto Ricans are can, uh, can legally come here, and so yeah, for them, it's just the price of a plane ticket, right? They don't pay human smugglers to get uh, to get to uh, get into the continental U.S. They just get a plane ticket and they come for a couple hundred bucks, and they're here, and, and problem solved. But no, but you know, people from elsewhere in the world cannot do that. <clears throat> and again, you can just see by how much they pay to get here that the border is at, the enforcement is actually quite draconian. You know the main issue people have is, well, if it's so draconian, how can there be so many people here legally? And there I have a piece called, I believe, Some Unpleasant Immigration Arithmetic, where I say, look, the question is, how many would come if you could come for the price of a bus ticket? right? And then it's like, oh yeah, probably maybe like hundreds of millions. So yeah. So then when we go and see, we have 11 million here compared to hundreds of millions that would come if it were actually free. And you realize, wow, we actually have extremely close borders and the enforcement
0: is actually very strict and harsh. It's probably hard, if you're already an opponent of immigration or, quote, illegal immigration, mm-hmm. it's probably hard to, you know, think of something that you oppose as having draconian enforcement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you were talking to conservatives and talking about, I don't know, gun control or something like that, they they might be able to call whatever... Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. enforcement there is draconian but i'm sure uh someone on the left would not use such a term Mm -hmm. so i don't know it might just be a psych a psychological block no 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 amount of enforcement is going to be considered draconian when you're just stopping people from illegally invading the country from their perspective
1: yeah so what i what i say is look you can think about this as a continuum uh you could say that a lot the law actually makes no difference and we have just as much immigration as we would have if there was no law at all and then at the other end, we could have actually zero happening. And I say, just place us on this continuum, right? And I say, look, if you just have any reasonable answer to the question, how many would be here if we didn't have, if anyone could come legally, then I think it's clear that we have, and, you know, and so maybe like you know, at most 5% of the people that want to be here or want to come are already here. So like by that measure, our borders are 95% closed and you know, probably more like 98 or 99% closed is the reality.
0: Yeah. And it's totally it's totally compatible to say that the enforcement is severe and mm-hmm. we have very far from closed borders. And at the same time, governments are incompetent at most everything they do. So there is similarly draconian, you know, restrictions against drug use. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's far from the government is far from successful at stamping out the use of drugs or the sale of drugs. I, I've never quite understood that, but I, I like the way you talk about it and the way you, yeah. the way you approach it by uh, looking at smuggling prices as an indication.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, like you can definitely do the same thing for drugs and say, all right. So what's the free market price? What's the current price? All right, and you know, some economists have that, you know, so like economist Steve Levitt and uh, I believe Jeff Myron have actually argued. So what would the price of these drugs be in a free market if there were, anyone could just produce it for anyone who wanted it? And yeah, I think you'll see that prohibition is probably multiplying prices many fold. I would say, you know, like, like, you know, if you're saying like, is government good at doing what it's doing? I say, well, they have a lot of resources. So it might be that they're very bad per dollar and yet they throw so much money at it that they actually do make a huge difference. So definitely for immigration and for drugs, I think they actually do uh, very successfully, greatly change the price compared to what it would be without enforcement. I mean, I just think that the laws are bad, but that's different from saying that the laws don't work in the sense they don't change anything.
0: Sure. Yeah. Or that, that you know, they change a lot, but it's a it's when you're trying to change human nature and stop millions of people from yeah. doing something they want to do. Obviously, you're not going to be 100 percent successful unless you're a tiny island who gives the death penalty to drug dealers.
1: Right. I mean, you know, like, like there's an old saying, it's much easier to destroy than to create, and I think this really does destroy government. Governments have been very good at destroying a lot of stuff. So it looks like you've got a picture of San Francisco behind you. The government of San Francisco has been great at preventing the uh, peninsula from being covered with skyscrapers.
0: Yes, it like has.
1: You could say you say they've effectively destroyed uh, like, like hundreds of skyscrapers or just or really just strangled them in the cradle before they could actually even get off the ground. yeah you know, it, it seems given those prices, that if people could just legally build what they wanted on their own land, you would be you would look like Manhattan or actually maybe even more dense than Manhattan. You might look you know it would be you know, it's like yeah you know, think Hong Kong is denser than Manhattan I'm not hundred percent on that. So you know, like, you know, just, go, just being able to, uh, to stop people and, uh, and destroy things is just much easier. So like, even the government of India, which is notoriously incompetent, and yet they do have very strict rules on building tall buildings, and they successfully enforce them.
0: Can we jump over to part, you have a whole section in your book called Education Without Romance. Uh, mm-hmm. I really like that title. Before you talk about your perspective, what is the romantic view of education? And what do you have against romance?
1: (laughs) Ranting View of Education says that people go in ignorant, but curious, and they emerge knowledgeable and satisfied. So that's a pretty good description of it. And along the way, it's so they're having a great time, like just savoring the sweet flavor of ideas and enlightenment, right? So I say that's the, uh, and on top of all that, when you emerge, you've been trained to do whatever your life's ambition is, combine all the good things. So you're enlightened, you're productive, you're well-trained, you had a great time along the way, and you owe it all to your alma mater. That is education with romance.
0: And it's probably a a glorious institution and practice that you can never have too much of. Oh, yes. Yes. The more, the merrier.
1: Essentially, education with romance is the propaganda that you get over your PA system from your principal. I don't know if you had one, but we had in my high school, we had Dr. Philotico, who Would did you have, go to the greatest high school these, ever? Yes, these truly bizarre Orwellian statements of, you know, you know, I am sure that we are all delighted to be back here again on Monday. And you're looking on the road, like, people look miserable. What are you talking about? And it's like, and like, surely she cannot be so deluded as to actually think the students are jumping out of their skins to be there. So it's more like, she's just saying deliberate falsehoods and just trying to and trying to ram them down our throats with this implicit threat of don't you dare even say the truth or else you're going to get in trouble
0: everyone must live the lie i have told you so what's the cold hard what are the cold hard facts the unromantic version
1: wow well, where do i start So as an economist, I find it most helpful just to begin by saying, look, the main reason why education pays isn't that you're learning a lot of useful skills. The main reason it pays is that you get a stamp on your forehead. You get certified. Economists call the signaling. I have an entire book on this called The Case Against Education, where I try to argue people with all my might and means – to say, look, it just—it it is just crazy to say that the reason why education improves your career prospects is primarily that you learn useful stuff because most of what you learn in school is just not useful on the job. Just no freaking way could that be. Uh, on average, of course, there are exceptions. So that's one big part. So it says that it is not actually this way of transforming unproductive youth into productive adults. Rather, it is Basically, an obstacle course that people are have to run through. And some do well and they get the prizes in life, and others don't do so well, and their prizes are unlikely to be given to them as a result. But you know, individually, of course, you might say, all right, fine, I'm still on the obstacle course. I still have to do my best. But from a social point of view, this means that trying to just make the like to make the obstacle course bigger and add more and more obstacles, and then give people even bigger rewards to run over more obstacles is just a crazy approach because it's one like like our goal should be to get people ranked early and then get them into the job market rather than prolonging this trial period, right? And also so, just, to see, just to see, like, could we figure out a way of combining work with this trial period to get
0: something that at least is not just so totally wasteful? So wasteful levels of spending aside, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. do think it is a helpful service to, mm-hmm. you know, help people signal via education, Right. But the, the main caveat is
1: that we could have a lot less on average. We could finish much earlier and still- You could have wreck. done it
0: by middle school.
1: Yes. Yeah. Which which is what we actually used to have. So you know, after World War II, only about 25% of American adults would have had a high school diploma. In those days, high school diploma was impressive. You could go and take it and say, I should be able to be a manager. I'm qualified. I finished high school. Now people would think that was crazy. So that's one big part of the romance that must be rejected to say, look, it's not- Really, primarily about preparing you for your future. It is about getting you the right stamps on your forehead, and the more stamps people have, the more stamps you need to compete. right? so there's that. Um, the, another part you of call the that romance, credential inflation. Yeah, credential inflation, exactly. Right, which we really can see in the data seems to have. If you just look at what kind of education you needed to get a job in the old days. If you go and compare jobs that have barely changed, still, we can see that the amount of education you need to be considered employable has gone up a lot, something like three years uh, on a typical job since World War II. So yeah, like at the end of World War II, high school degrees, plenty for a secretary. Now, new secretaries would generally have a college degree in something or other, right? So like, why is it so great to go and just keep prolonging this period of dependency rather than try to get people just to cut, cut to the chase and learn where they're really going to learn, which is on the job. Like I said, we think of education as being job training, but really it's a passport to the real training, which happens on the job. Now, a lot of people have probably the most popular criticism of my work here is to say, yeah, well, Brian is a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal economist who thinks only in terms of money and jobs and is blind to the wonderful soul-enhancing enlightening aspects of education. That was
0: my next about. comment.
1: Yeah, right. And, and to these critics, a lot of these critics just say, Brian never even mentions this. And I say, look, I've got a whole chapter on it. I might be wrong, but don't say I didn't talk about it. Like I can understand giving a book a negative review without reading it. We all do that. But without reading the table of contents. I've on. heard
0: people <laughs> crit- make that criticism of you. And it, and it yeah. baffles <laughs> me too, because you, you, you don't just address it. You spend a long time addressing yeah. it.
1: Well, it's towards the end of the book. You can't expect someone to finish a book, right? That's That's true. That's a good point. That's for for nerds. Um, But anyway, so what I actually do in the book is I say, let's look at the facts. It's not enough to say that we are trying to cause enlightenment, trying to inspire. Therefore, we do. you got to look and see, are people, in fact, enlightened? Are people, in fact, inspired? So what I do in the book is I get as many different measures of these things as I can and just say, look, there's almost no sign this is happening. Most people are super bored in school. It does not inspire a love of any of the intellectual or cultural topics that you were trying to inspire. So, you know, go to the list. So, like, a lot of schools push classical music. Almost no one likes classical music. I, and I say, like, I do. I do. I, I'm someone who really enjoys it. But to say that we have successfully fostered a love of classical music in school is absurd because people don't love it.
0: Like, I think you oh, do a, a James, really James good James job. Here. Yeah. Addressing that argument, but you are really up against it's a, it's a Sisyphean task because <laughs> the people who the people who are most likely to make that objection seem like the least likely to be moved by a data driven case for whether or not enlightenment and hi, you know mm-hmm. higher culture is is taking place. Like mm-hmm. you you make these points about you know Shakespeare and and someone's going to come back with. Well, you know, higher culture isn't just about Shakespeare, Brian, and obviously your point is not that it's all about Shakespeare or Mozart or whatever, but if you, you know, yeah. the bur- some of the burden of proof should be on the people claiming that this is indeed happening and they've seems like they've failed it utterly. Yeah.
1: So in particular, what I say is, look, I'm not saying that the current canon of the ideas and culture that we try to force feed to students is perfect. What I'm saying is the stuff that we try to force feed the most, we still don't see much sign that it works which it just shows that force-feeding probably is just not a very good way of spreading this, this appreciation. Uh, also, I make the argument that you know, when I was a kid, a lot of people would say, look, like, you know, if, we, if, we, if kids don't learn about Shakespeare and classical music in school, then only the rich will ever be able to get an appreciation of it. This way it's for everybody. And then what we've seen is we've got the internet and the internet makes the appreciation and the exploration of ideas and culture free for all who have a computer or a phone or whatever. And Yet, we go and just look at the actual viewership, we can now see, aha, the problem was not supply, it was demand. The problem was not that we weren't giving people enough access to Shakespeare or philosophy or classical music. The problem is that when it's totally free, people want to listen to Nicki, Nicki Minaj and they don't want to listen to Wagner. And of course, that's exaggerated. There are some people who listen to Wagner, so I love Wagner, but still, it is so ineffective to try to go and make people appreciate high culture uh, via school because it just doesn't stick. People disappear like basically they're conscripts. They do the bare minimum to get through and then they give it up because they never wanted to do it and you didn't persuade them. There's always this hope the teacher has. of sure, you don't like it at first, but once you spend some time with it, then the
0: greatness of it will infuse your soul and then you'll thank me afterwards. And that, that approach to me makes sense On a personal level, I mean, if you've ever had a close friend that you were just dying to show a, you know, a beautiful movie to you've got to see Citizen Kane and you you hope it's going to open their eyes to a new world and they see it and maybe they like it. But if they don't, you don't keep going and keep showing them this, this, you know, the music that you want them to like, You, you know, you give up after a respectable number of tries, not 12 years. Yeah, I
1: mean, so like what I say is I am all in favor of giving kids a a smorgasbord of options just to to expose them to the possibilities. But that is not what school does. School pretends to do that. But what school actually does is pick a short list of topics that almost no one is interested in and then ram them down your throats for at least 13 years so like almost no one likes poetry. We know this to be true. Almost everybody uh, finds it boring and uh, and would not spend their own time on it voluntarily. And yet we spend 13 years trying to make kids like it, right? And say, look, why? like like yeah. So like expose them to it and like give them a few hours. I mean, not for you. All right, let's move on to something else. Totally reasonable to say, fine. We'll come back and give you a few more hours in a couple more years. I've done that with my kids. Like, oh, so you don't like this movie right now? All right, let's. All right, fine, fine. We're done. Um, a couple of years later, you won't even remember. I'll show it to you again. Maybe you'll be older. Maybe you'll like it then. And so that's that. That is fine. And again, if schools actually were to go and just expose people to a wide range of things, I would say, wow, that's that. That sounds pretty cool. And yeah, I mean, it's reason. If they say, look, if one out of hundred works out, great. So, yeah, that makes sense if you spend an hour on each of those 100 things. It doesn't make sense if you spend hundreds of hours
0: on one thing, and we know that almost no one will like it. So you talk about, yeah, I think your estimate is that education currently is maybe 80% signaling and 20% mm-hmm. teaching useful skills. Yeah, uh, Some of that is maybe inherent to the educational process. Mm-hmm. But no doubt, I think you'd probably say that a lot mm-hmm. of that is also due to just how bad and dysfunctional schools are, how, how would that balance maybe shift if schools were you know run in a sensible way and weren't massively subsidized to be stupid? Hmm. So this is
1: one where it's uncomfortable for me because when I look at existing private schools, I have to say they're not that different from public schools in terms of their curriculum.
0: Are you talking about higher ed or? Okay. Okay.
1: K-12, which is the one people are, are more focused on. Sure. So, you know, so, you know, you know private private K-12, does not look that different to me than public public K-12. Um, so, you know, I think I think a lot of what's going on in private schools is they are you know, responding to what parents want kids to have, which is something similar. Now, I think it would be fair to say that a lot of the reason why there's such uniformity of the curriculum is because everyone's trying to get ready for college. So that might be part of uh, might be also be part of the story. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely, I think that you could go and make it much more human capital intensive. So uh, you know, I've, I've, during COVID, I homeschooled all four of my kids. And before COVID, I was homeschooling my older sons. And now they're in actually in college, but my younger son, I'm still homeschooling. Right. And yeah, so like a lot of what I say there is, look, there's some things that I'm going to make you do, even if you don't want to, because they're super useful. Again, math, first and foremost, we're always doing math. Even if you don't like it, so like, like you're a kid, you, you don't like. The, if you don't learn it now, you'll probably never learn it, and then you will be unable to do a wide range of jobs that you might be interested in. But then, for other things, I try to actually find something something they want to do. So it's like, well, let's have you read things you want to read. Like, why not? Right, you know, so like, like, why should you have to read something you're not interested in? I'll, I'll try to give them some guidance, but if you what know, well, my guidance doesn't work for them, then all right, well, you don't like the same things that I like. That's I've you, never
0: understood that else. reading is such a useful skill that's one of, you know, maybe one of this, it's one of the skills that you acknowledge as being, okay, here's a useful thing that people actually do largely learn in school. Um, w- why force kids to read things they don't want to read? If you can get them reading trash, that's so much better than so yes. many people who read nothing, you know? Yeah. yeah worse. Um, okay. I I'm, I'm aware that I'm keeping you a little over time. So I'm going to, I just want to get one, one question in about, uh, The success sequence, I I found this really interesting. So what's the success sequence and why why does it matter?
1: Right. So there's a number of researchers who've worked on this, um, but, uh, and so like, I'm only a messenger, but I will say that this immediately resonated with me. So uh, there's now you saying, hmm, is it possible that there's a pretty simple formula for avoiding poverty in America and that the formula is basically the same one that almost all parents, teachers, and society tells you to do? Which comes down to step one, finish high school. Step one, finish high school. Step two, get a full get a full time job, and step three, get married before you have kids. Right, and so anyway, it seems like when when you intuitively, it's like, hmm, first of all, it seems like if you do those things, probably you would avoid poverty in the United States. And second of all, it doesn't sound that hard actually. And third of all, people are telling you to do it, so it's not like the combination to a locker where it's like, Oh, well, now I know the combination. Now I can do it. I wish I'd known that before. So anyway, um, the researchers have worked on this have indeed found that uh, this is highly effective. And if yeah, I, if I, if I, if I remember the number from the book, basically by the time you're in your late twenties, if you will follow this success sequence or you're on track, you know, on track would basically mean that if you're, uh, if you uh, aren't married yet, you don't have kids yet. Uh, then yeah, you're late twenties, step- you, uh, you uh, sorry. Does that third step include having kids, or is it? No, no, you don't actually have to have kids to follow the success. Just don't you have should, kids uh, before you get married. Yeah, yes, get married before having kids, if any. So okay. put all that put all that together, and then your odds of being in, of being below the poverty line in the U.S. Is something like two percent, right? So, and again, though now, so like what I do is I say the you know, like the people working working on it in a way I think are too modest. And they say, all right, well, look, obviously, like this all happens in a social context and we can't just expect people to lift themselves up by their bootstraps. When I heard it, like kind of sounds like that would be the right implication is, look, if your success sequence was graduate first in your class, go to MIT and then marry an actress. If that was your 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 formula for for uh, for getting out of poverty, then a reasonable reaction would be, well, that's almost impossible for a normal person to do. So that's not helpful. The success sequence is persuasive precisely because when you hear it, you realize you don't have to be smart to do it. You don't have to be special or super. You don't need to be a star. It just requires basic horse sense to go and follow this stuff. And uh, you know, any like and, you know, especially as as I as I already said, like you know, finishing high school in the U.S. is quite easy. Just you basically show up, put in a basic effort, and you will finish. Um, except during severe recessions, getting a job in the U.S. is again very easy, not just according to some egghead economists, but when you go and survey the poor themselves, the normal, you know, we ask them, so is it hard to get a job? Normally, they say, no, but it's not hard to get a job. Uh, the main issue that the poor seem to have in America is keeping jobs, not getting jobs. So it's not that they can't find a job. It's that you know, like, they just feel disgruntled or they argue with the boss or their to customers, and then they wind up getting fired. And again, these are things where like older people say, well, just stop doing that stuff. Grow up, grow up. Look, this is a job. It's not about you. You're being paid money in order to be part of a team. And you just need to swallow your pride and get with the program and accept that the way that you advance is by becoming valuable. That is your that is your ticket to a better life is becoming a valuable member of the team, not being a defiant squeaky wheel, right? And then finally, of course, this last step of don't have kids until you're married, I mean, when you hear it, it's super obvious. Uh, the main critics of the success sequence have said, oh, no, 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 that's not the real issue. Basically, working full-time is the only thing that matters. Look, here's the obvious fact. If you, are, if you have kids and you're not married, it's really hard to work full-time, really hard, right? Especially when the kids are young. So just to say that work is the only thing that matters is just bizarre. It's like saying, look, it doesn't matter whether you light your house on fire. What matters is whether the house doesn't burn. It's like well, there's a very close connection between these two things. So, like, why are you acting like there's some uh, some big distinction? And then I would also say that in the latest work on the success sequence, they actually do confirm that each of these three steps is independently important. Well, again, probably working full time is the biggest one, but again, that is closely connected to these other steps.
0: So you you opened up with this caveat that you were just the messenger. Uh, mm-hmm. Indicating that this, there's something controversial about this. Now, uh, it sounds super obvious and mundane. Why? Why would this not be a popular talking point? Uh,
1: yes. So, I do have an essay in Labor Econ versus the World where I track down all the main people who are angry about the, the, the success sequence and have criticized it, and I quote their main criticisms. Uh, I think about like six or seven critics. Basically they got nothing. Right? <laughs> they've, they've got, they've got a, they, you know, they got a poker handful of nothing. And so they're making a lot of us squawking about, uh, uh, you know, so you know, basically things like, oh, well, this ignores the role of society. It's like, how does it a role, or ignore the role of society? It's just saying, look, these are some things that you can do. And if you do them, you'll almost certainly won't be poor and it would be, you would be well advised to do them. Yeah. My thought about why it's
0: it's maybe not a popular point is related to what you said earlier. Like if, if the success sequence was being first in your class and MIT and marrying Cindy Crawford and all that, okay, you, you, you know, shrug your shoulders and say, I guess no one gets to be successful. Um, but because it's so easy, it forces you into a position intuitively to have to say, well, tough luck, or, you know, to have a little bit of a harsh attitude. Um, Mm -hmm. The attitude you might have towards someone, you know, real in your life who was screwing up by not doing really obvious things that might help them. And people don't want to have that attitude or it's a mean sounding attitude. Right.
1: Yeah, so I you mean, know, you know, philosophically, of course, there's a lot of people, you know, not just Democrats, a lot of Republicans too, also feel uncomfortable with this attitude. You know, the same, you know, same way. There's many Republicans. Saying, I do too. Yeah, yeah, You know, saying, look, look, like it's you know, trade with China that went and caused the opioid epidemic in America. It's like, did the Chinese importers? go to the, go to their towns and inject them while in their sleep. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, so there's, so like, there's, so like, like you lose your job in a factory and then you should go and become a heroin addict. What do you Like that, that's absurd. Obviously. And, and, and if you, and if you had a close relative who gave you this reasoning, quote unquote, you would just fur your brow and just say that makes, that is a ridiculous thing to say. Like, I, I, I don't even know where to start. Like, 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 no, Stop! You know, 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 stop trying to blame people in another country and broad economic conditions for your irresponsible behavior. Straighten up and fly right, right? And maybe the first time I'll give you some help, but yeah, if you keep doing this stuff, then no, like I'm not going to keep helping you. Um, You know, one thing that's very striking to me is that if you give people individual hypotheticals, like suppose you have a no good brother. Who you know constantly drinks and loses jobs and he beats his girlfriend. And every time that he's got no place to go, he shows up in, uh, at your doorstep and says, Tay, help me out, I'm really in trouble. Right. So what would you think about someone who finally got sick of it and just said, No, I'm done cleaning up your messes?
0: That they were well, setting it, healthy boundaries.
1: Yes. And what I found is almost, you know, like you consider the person who says no to be evil or cruel, and almost no one will. Almost everyone, when you put it that way, will say, all right, I see the point. And all right, maybe this no good brother is going to be homeless on the streets, but I don't see why the well-behaved brother should have to be cleaning up these messes for the rest of his life. Right. And you might say he's a, uh, if he's a saint, maybe he'll keep taking him in, but you're not going to condemn him as a villain when he says I've had enough. And that's for your own brother. So if someone says, "Look, politically, we can't just say that when someone is poor through irresponsible behavior, that we're not going to go and help them." It's like, well, hmm. I mean, this is a total stranger. I mean, it seems like like if you're if you're not going to condemn someone for failing to help a close relative, then why would you condemn them for want, not wanting to help a total stranger? Right, And again, I think this is just a disconnect that people have between their normal moral sense that they, that they actually practice in daily life with a high-level philosophy of everyone is their brother's keepers and we must practice unlimited infinite forgiveness. And like I just have, you know, like, so, like, like some of the other books are more philosophical, but you know, I have the view that, you know, that the ordinary moral sense is a lot more reliable than grand theory. So the ordinary moral sense of, look, like, like you've screwed up too many times and I'm closing my door on you and tough luck, you know, and, and, and like, I'm not a bad guy for saying that I don't want to clean up your messes anymore. I think that is a much more reasonable view than the infinite forgiveness view that a lot of people suddenly start pushing in
0: politics. So by my count, you have upwards of, uh, 10 upcoming books you're working on right now. Yeah. Um, I, I know you're working on Build, Baby, Build. I know you're working on Poverty, Who to Blame. Mm-hmm. You mentioned seven or eight more oh, yes. books. Se-
1: se- seven more books of my best blog posts, Yeah,
0: And then I wanted to ask specifically about uh, a maybe book that you're working on, or you, you dropped a little teaser yeah. on your blog about uh, yeah, a, a yeah. generic defense of laissez-faire, and I know you were you were mm-hmm. fishing for some titles. Yeah. Is Can you say anything about that, or is, that, is it still too soon to tell? Yeah,
1: you know, I, I, I'd be happy to talk about it. So... The first title that came to my mind is you know, Steel Man. Steel Man, which usually is a phrase people use for making other people's arguments better. But I wanted to use it to say, look, I think I've got a really strong argument here That's I, that I very carefully put the pieces of the armor together, so it's going to be really hard to actually get through this argument. Do
0: you have a subtitle
1: in mind? let um, see. So I think I had a few, but... Uh, you know, like, but you know, like, like it, it really is going to be you know, my defense of free markets. Uh, you know, this book has, of course, been written many times, but uh, I feel like we've actually learned a lot in the last 40 or 50 years since Milton Friedman wrote Capitalism, Freedom and Free to Choose. And I just want to go and put a lot of that, you know, that, that we understand between two covers in a way that's accessible. I think uh, you're the,
0: the person to do it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, like a, a lot of what I want to say here is, let's see. So, you know, part of it is just talking about the, you know, the very neglected benefits of markets that don't sound good, all right, uh, which is something that, that is around, but, I, but I've been thinking a lot more about the psychological concept of social desirability bias, the idea that there are many things that are obviously true, but people, are ve- people lie because it doesn't sound good, you know, like, am I fat? There's only one socially acceptable answer to that. You know, uh, so, uh, and we can see this in a, in a lot of other political rhetoric, you know, nothing's more important than education. It's like, hmm, what about food? Isn't food more important than education, <laughs> right? Or like, you know, we should take any step to prevent COVID deaths. Like, well, we don't take any step to prevent people from dying in car crashes. So like, like, what are you talking about? Right. So anyway, part of what I want to say is there's a lot of things that are great about markets that don't sound good. And I just want to come and say, these are good things. So for example, it is really good that markets get people to avoid wasting valuable resources by charging a price for them. People love the idea of just giving things away for free. Isn't it great when medicine is free? It's like, hmm, well, when it's free, then the people use some very expensive treatments that they don't actually appreciate very much. So no, it is not great for medicine to be free. There's actually is a value in charging people for things. It is a way to avoid the waste of valuable resources. So that's one. Uh, then I also want to talk a lot about the uh, many of the textbook complaints that economists have about markets and the extent to which those are overstated. I think, you know, one big one, there's, you know, if you go to any econ textbook, they'll talk a lot about monopoly, the evil monopoly. And one thing that, you know, that I'll say, hmm, well, let's think about a few monopolies you did business with today, like Amazon. All right. Amazon. Yeah. What's the next best thing to Amazon? If Amazon shut down, what would you do instead? And I got to say, I don't know. People say Walmart, like Walmart ain't Amazon. It's not even close to Amazon. Like like Amazon is so much better. And yet the reason why Amazon has this special position is because Amazon is awesome, right? It just has an endless selection, super cheap, super convenient. This is not what the textbook story Monopoly says. Uh, And so what's going on? Well, a lot of the reason why a firm can be a monopoly is because it doesn't act like one. It acts like it's got comp- competitors breathing down its neck, even though it doesn't, right? As to what's going on there, I think it's interesting to explore. But anyway, I so say a lot of these complaints, when you really look at the world, they're actually simple-minded complaints, which don't fit a lot of the facts. And then I want to turn to regulation and say, look, there's a few people have of what regulation does. And then we look at the real world and see it's totally different from that. So people talk about regulation protecting consumers. I say the most important kind of domestic regulation we have is all the regulation that prevents the building of housing. And yeah, what does that do to protect protect consumers? It protects them from getting affordable housing is what it does. (laughs) You can go and look at the parts of the country where it's reasonably easy to build housing, like a lot of Texas, and regular people can then afford a nice home in Texas. And then you go to San Francisco where they're protecting the hell out of you. And you see that almost no one who isn't super rich can even afford to live there. But that view, Brian. Yeah, (laughs) that view enjoyed by a few rich people. It's like, look, if a lot of people don't get to enjoy it, what good is it? So I say like, and I say like housing regulation is actually a much more typical expression of what government really does. A lot of high minded propaganda combined with actual just, you know sheer folly. I mean, some of it is just, as people say, it's just rich people going and protecting what they got and excluding other people. Say like, that would actually be better than what we really have. A lot of what we really have is just pure waste of just making bonfires of resources and just saying nobody gets them. I think that's actually more typical. Because like if you take a look at people that own a two or three-story house in San Francisco, it does not actually benefit them that you cannot replace that with a skyscraper. If you own it, You could sell that land for an arm and a leg, and then you could move a bit outside of the city and you could have something else that you like a lot better. And then meanwhile, it gets replaced with a skyscraper that allows 10,000 people to to, 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 to enjoy the stuff that previously was only enjoyed by one family
0: living in a two-story house. Certainly the first people to sell would – I mean if all of a sudden land development became uh, very, very allowed, the first sellers would Mm -hmm. do just great. I mean, is everyone else just protecting their own long-term interests because they want to maintain the option to sell high indefinitely into the future? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty crazy. I, I think the real story is what I call myopic paranoia. People just like the sky will fall if we allow people to build sky, a skyscraper here. Like <laughs> the sky will not fall. Money will rain down on you. Yeah. Things will change. But guess what? Change is, you uh, can easily be really good. We've had all kinds of other changes that we are happy with. You're going to be happy with this change too. Once it happens, it's just your own sheer stubbornness, and combined, of course, with the fact that government may, uh, you know, government makes the decision for you. So it's easy for you to not face the reality of well. On the one hand, I could sell out and make a lot of money. On the other hand, I could keep living here. So you know, one big theme of my work is actions speak louder than words. And many people who say, "Oh,
0: I could never live anywhere with San Francisco." If, you, if the price were right, they would change their tune As a person who lives near San Francisco, uh, the exodus is real. <laughs> yes. well imagine the exodus if people could make te- could could get paid ten times
1: the current value of their home to sell to a skyscraper developer. <laughs> I know that would be
0: really shocking. Uh, and I think it would get a lot of them out of their doldrums. I think so. Uh, Your book is Labor Econ Versus the World, Essays on the World's Greatest Market. Can you recommend any horribly exploitative monopolies where people can buy your book?
1: Hmm, gee. Yeah, Amazon is the only place you can get it, actually. It is an Amazon exclusive. Amazon, among its many other great things, has created this opportunity for authors to try out experimental publishing projects, and I've availed myself of this. They give me a way better deal per book than any other publisher in the world has ever given me. So I'm hoping that it sells a lot of copies and then heck, maybe I'll just say goodbye to regular publishers.
0: I'm sure you're being exploited
1: somehow. Right? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. so yeah, thank, you, know, thank you, Amazon. I'm sure they're not listening. And if they did, they might not even want to be associated with what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't want to be associated with someone saying that we're not terrible. People will hate <laughs> us for supporting someone who says that we're not terrible. But yes, Amazon, you've done great things. And I appreciate what you're doing, even if you don't appreciate it yourself. <laughs> thank you. Uh, where can people find you if they want to see what you're doing, what you're up to? Yes. So um, my website is bcaplan.com. That's B-C-A-P-L-A-N. And I would just say, actually, to name another monopoly, Google. If you just Google my last name, I'm still the number one hit. So uh, obviously Google bought me off with this. <laughs> so number one hit for Kaplan with a C. So that's probably the easiest way to go.
0: Uh, all right. Thanks, Brian. Thank you so Thank much you. for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. All right. Uh, this is fantastic, Chris. I think you've got a great future in podcasting.
1: you got a great style, great questions. Thanks a lot.